Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 161 of the Flying Free Podcast. A couple of months ago, I listened to a fascinating book on Audible. It was beautifully read by the author. And when I was finished, I knew I had to see if she would be a guest on this podcast. And you know what? I sent her an email and I was so delighted because she responded immediately and said yes. And here she is. So thank you so much, Kate Moore, for your willingness to introduce yourself and the subject of your book, who was a female warrior of the 19th century, Elizabeth Packard. It's such a pleasure to be here, Natalie. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm such an advocate for Elizabeth, everything that she achieved, everything she went through. So I'm really excited for our conversation and to introduce your listeners to this incredible woman. Yes. I was telling, uh, I was telling Kate before we got on that I have already recommended this book to some of my close friends and those that have chosen to read it are absolutely entranced with this book. And they see so many parallels between what Elizabeth went through and what women back then went through, um, with being, uh, well, we'll get into that in a minute and what modern day Christian women are going through today. So hopefully you guys will see some of that in this episode. I want to tell you a little bit about Kate. She is the New York times bestselling author of the radium girls, which won the 2017 Goodreads choice award for best history. This book was also voted us librarians favorite nonfiction book of 2017 and Radium Girls was named a notable nonfiction book of 2018 by the American Library Association. Now, her latest book, which is what we are going to be having a discussion about here, is called The Woman They Could Not Silence, the true story of a 19th century housewife who was committed to an insane asylum for being crazy. No, no unless being crazy means daring to hold different opinions than her husband. And indeed, that is exactly why women were placed in asylums just 150 years ago. So Kate is a British writer. You probably noticed her accent. She's based in London, and this is not her first rodeo. She writes across a variety of genres and has had multiple titles on the Sunday Times bestseller list. So we will talk about how you can follow and connect with Kate online toward the end of this episode. But for now, let's dig in to our subject. So I'm curious, first of all, to know why you selected the subjects that you did for your last two books, The Radium Girls, and maybe tell just a little bit about that book too, in case people want to know. And then also The Woman They Could Not Silence, Elizabeth Packard. Um, What were you hoping to accomplish in telling these stories? Well, the way I came to the stories was actually quite different with, with, with both the books. So The Radium Girls was a really serendipitous discovery. Um, I wasn't a a history writer at the time I discovered their story. Um, I was a freelance writer and I was ghostwriting memoirs and things like that. Um, But I'd never written a history book and I did English at college. So history was not something that I sort of connected with much. Um, But I found the Radium Girls story through directing a play about them. And I knew it was based on a true story. So I wanted my theatre production to be authentic. 
So I read everything I could find about these women. And for those who don't know, the Radium Girls were American women who were employed to paint watches and clocks with glow-in-the-dark radium paint. This is around the time of the First World War and the Roaring Twenties. Now, as we know today, radium paint is highly radioactive. Yet the women were told to put their paintbrushes between their lips to make a fine point for the delicate handiwork they had to do. They were assured that radium was safe. And in fact, at that time, people thought it was and it was put into all sorts of things, you know, cosmetics and, you know, pills to treat hay fever and so on. So the women were told it was safe and they embark on a landmark fight for justice once it becomes apparent that actually their employers have condemned them to death. So it's a story of women fighting for their rights, standing up for themselves and standing up for the sisterhood. Um, A story of women showing strength and sacrifice and courage and dignity. And as I read everything I could find about the women, I realised there was no book actually that celebrated them as people. There were books about the astonishing legal legacy they had left. There were books about the incredible science but no book about these women who I fell in love with through directing this play. You know, I'm so emotionally connected to their story. Um, And so I decided if no one else has written the book, you know, why don't I, even though I'm British, even though I'm not a historian, you know, as such. And so that's how that book came to be. It It was a total passion project. It was me feeling like these really special women who, you know, defied all the odds to fight for justice and who, experienced such awful tragedy and suffering and yet who rose above it altruistically to make the world a better place that you know I wanted to celebrate these women and so that's why I wrote that book with the woman they could not yeah and it's an incredible story I I, I'm an advocate for Elizabeth Packard I'm also an advocate for the Radium Girls because I want everyone to know their story right with Elizabeth it was a completely almost sort of opposite way of of coming to it you've spoken you know really movingly in your introduction about the parallels that you you know experienced reading the women they could not silence you know with your own life with the lives of the women that you have connected with and that's almost how I came to the story I, I came to it sort of generically to begin with I was inspired by the Me Too movement in the fall of 2017 But what really struck me about that time wasn't that women were speaking up and speaking out because actually we always have. We always have made allegations of rape and sexual harassment. We've called it out when we've experienced it. The difference with Me Too is that finally women were being listened to and believed. And that got me thinking, well, why is, you know, how, why has it taken so long and how have women been silenced in the past? And that made me think, well, actually, for centuries, whenever women have used our voices, we've been called crazy. That's been the easy label to stick on us. You know, our mental health has been wielded as a weapon against us. Yes. That's what I wanted to write about. So actually, my starting point was the modern day. And it was thinking about, you know, I want to explore these issues about, you know, how these labels stick, you know, what's the so-called science behind it? You know, why does it keep happening again and again? And then I went looking for one woman who could encapsulate those issues, you know, a woman to whom this had happened, a sane woman who simply was assertive, who simply used her voice and for doing so, as you mentioned, was locked up in an insane asylum. Yeah. And so 
I, I literally went, you know, went hunting for a woman who could do that. And I first read Elizabeth's name in a University of Wisconsin essay that I just found online through this search. And the moment I then Googled her name and started reading about her, her dramatic story, um, her incredible sort of Phoenix rising from the ashes sort of comeback, how she becomes this incredible woman um, who you know, not only finds her voice, but is able to use it and to make things happen through it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is, a, it is a story with a happy ending, despite all the horrendousness that she experiences. And perhaps most of all, and I, and I think this is perhaps why you and your friends have been so moved by it. Elizabeth was a writer, you know, she didn't only use her voice, you know, to change the world and society through her campaigning and her advocacy she wrote down what she was feeling experiencing thinking and because of that I've been able to quote directly from Elizabeth herself in the woman they could not silence so I hope if we just you know read it it is to experience a sort of intimate conversation almost with Elizabeth herself you hear from the woman herself what she is going through Yes. And you do. I, it, it is. It, I really felt like, I mean, I'm blown away. I had no idea that you started from that place and then you went looking for her and the fact yeah. that you found her, I mean, you found the perfect person yes, to write about. Yeah. I can, I, as you're talking, actually, I've got um, like tingles on the back of my neck. Just, just thinking about how, you know, same. It's I was getting needles and haystacks. You yeah. Know? <laughs> well, you know, to me, I just feel like that's a creator of the universe kind of thing. Like he mm-hmm. put Elizabeth in that place and time, gave her the personality that he gave her and the motivation to write. Like, I yeah. love how I can so re- I'm a writer too. I, I can so relate to this desperate need to write everything down. Like if no one's going to listen, that at least I can pour it out on paper and yeah. the universe can listen maybe. And God did listen. And he, and he, the fact that he just saved all of that until you came along and found it. It's like you uncovered this beautiful gem and it's a, it's like, the time is right for this story to be told. Mm. It really is. It's Elizabeth's story is going to inspire so many women. The women I work with too, the thing about writing, I love that um, this writing aspect is woven out throughout because we, we try to help women to actually process through writing. Writing is like an incredible processing tool. It helps Mm. you to see reality. If you can write it down and then you look at it in black and white, it's like, whoa, if it's just kind of jumbled up in our brain, our brains Completely. can make sense, yeah. make sense of it in different and, ways, but yeah. And, and that, and that was absolutely what Elizabeth was, was going through as well. You know, I, uh, you know, as I sort of described, you know, previous to her finding her voice, she was married for 21 years to her husband. And, you know, in that marriage, it was an unhappy marriage, a cheerless marriage, as she describes it. Um, and he was the one, he was a preacher actually. And, you know, all, he had all the words basically. And I, and I talk about her thoughts evaporating, uh, like the steam above the saucepan on her stove. Yes. And it's yes. only when she commits herself to paper that actually she sort of sees herself take shape on the page. And she later keeps a journal in the asylum, which later becomes a book. And she talks about, you know, my book is me, um, she actually sees that direct parallel that what she is writing is herself. So if anyone tries to silence that voice, they're silencing her. If anyone destroys that journal, it's her that they're destroying. 
Um, so absolutely, the, the writing is a huge part of her journey and her story as she not only, you know, finds the voice, but learns how to use it. Yes. Why don't you tell us, give us a synopsis of her story, like just the whole, and, and by the way, if, even if you listen to this podcast and you just hear the story, it's like, it's an incredible story, but you've got to, I tell my friends, the friends I've told to go get this book, I've told them you have to get it on audible and listen to Kate read the story. Because even as I'm listening to you now, Kate, I'm, I've just heard the whole story. I feel like your voice is Elizabeth's voice. I feel like you're <laughs> channeling her voice and all of her energy Thank and you. all of her personality through your voice. So go, so go definitely get the audible version. I also did get the Kindle version because there were certain quotes. There's so many quotable things in this book. Mm. And I just wanted to have the written version as well. But even when I was reading through the written version, it was like, no, the, I have to listen to Kate's voice, read this. It's just, it's like watching a movie. It's so, so wow. wonderful. So tell us, tell us about Elizabeth's life. Okay. So, um, the book opens in June, 1860 on the cusp of the American civil war. And it starts with Elizabeth who at that time in her life is a 43 year old housewife and mother of six. Her youngest child is just 18 months old. Her eldest is 18 years and it starts with Elizabeth lying in bed in her marital home in Illinois. It starts with a simple question. What would happen if your husband could commit you to an insane asylum just because you disagreed with him? And that is, you know, what happens to Elizabeth and what I want to uncover. So I mentioned earlier, you know, she's been married for 21 years. Uh, it's a cheerless marriage to a preacher. And over time, they have diverged in their views. Elizabeth is inspired by the National Women's Rights Movement. Um, the first Women's Rights Convention was held in 1848. And that unleashed a national conversation about the rights of women. You know, should women have a voice? Should women, you know, be citizens? Because actually the law at that time, as it stood, women were actually civilly dead. And this is something Elizabeth, to her, you know, horror, soon discovers because she isn't mad. She is a, a, not, not even, well, a forward thinking to some degree woman. You know, she was a woman ahead of her time. You know, she, she writes ultimately about, you know, wanting a, a female president and these kinds of things, you know, quite revolutionary ideas for the time. Mm -hmm. But really the, the crux of the problem between her and her husband is that A, she thinks, as she put it, you know, I, though a woman, have just as good a right to my opinion as my husband has to his. And that's really the crux of the issue. She thinks that she should have a voice in the marriage, that she has, you know, her spiritual experience is her own spiritual experience. And her husband can't dictate to her what God is telling her to do. Her relationship with God is her own. And that obviously leads to fireworks because particularly because her husband's a preacher, you know, he's supposed to lead his community and his family. And once his wife starts rebelling and starts saying, no, I, I no longer believe as you do, um, their religious views diverge, you know, he needs to put a stop to it because his standing in the community is just shot to pieces because he has this rebellious wife who is standing up to him. Yeah, it's worth saying. Um, I mean, there are there are lots of other political things going on as well. It's it's worth saying that Theophilus is not just sort of um, you know he, I think, is a very weak man and unlike Elizabeth, whose faith 
propels her and is strong for her all the way through and sort of really gets her through it. Theophilus is changeable at times, depending on, uh, you know, what he needs to say to the right people, which I, I think is an important point to make and showcases Elizabeth's true strength of character. Yeah. Uh, so I want to just... I'm, let me just yeah. interject it, it, one interrupt thing. Interrupt me because I could. I could oh yeah, talk, no. Talk <laughs> well, I just want I want to bring out the point too that when I was reading, even when I was reading about some of their interactions and throughout the book, obviously it became even more and more obvious. He was an abusive individual. He was spiritually mm. abusive. He was emotionally abusive, and actually physically abusive. When you think that he submitted her to all kinds of physical abuse in in the yeah. insane asylum, so yeah. Very yeah, controlling so, person. Absolutely. And I think a, a quotation of Elizabeth, you know, you talk about how, how powerful the quotations are. Something that really struck me when I was researching, she talks about how, you know, when women come before the man courts, as she describes them, you know, and obviously often that's still the same situation today. Mm -hmm. um, she says they don't understand uh, that, you know, the bruises on a woman may not be visible uh they may be spiritual but they sometimes hurt just as much if not more um yes. and she has this sort of foresight you know you, you think about co you know there's laws passed you know i believe in america certainly in the uk now um about coercive control about you know a man who tries to dictate what a woman wears who she sees which is exactly what theophilus did to elizabeth yeah. you know there are laws against that you know a man who controls the finances for example that was something else he withheld money from her he he was controlling in every mm -hmm. single way yep. um and ultimately she gained the strength of uh, of character to say no this this is enough i am my own person and and i'm gonna you know speak out against it. And can I, draw, can I make one more point too? Because mm. I want people to understand too, that this was a woman, she was an amazing homemaker. She took yes. care of her husband. She took care of her children. She, she was like the, you know, like the perfect quintessential queen of her home. Completely. Every, and, and I, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that she emphasizes that point in her writings as well. You know, she, you know, made the clothes for the children. You know, she would bake, she would garden, you know, she had this whole garden full of fruits and vegetables that she would then, you know, make all the pies from. She would nurse her children, you know, she did absolutely everything. Yes. And she is at pains to stress how good a wife and mother she was. And, and it's, it, it's telling, I think that because Elizabeth was a really exceptional person and when she was given only a domestic sphere to conquer, she did it exceptionally well. Yes. You know, she herself says, I, I'm not a person to half do anything. Yes. She goes at everything full throttle. Um, and, and that's the situation. And how the story develops is that to Elizabeth's horror, she realizes that actually the laws of the United States at that time actually side with the husband. So they say that actually a woman doesn't have the right to her own voice. She doesn't have a right to property, to the custody of her children, um, to her own earnings, even to her liberty. And so Theophilus is able to apply to the local state asylum in Illinois and get his wife admitted, even though she is sane and there is, um, you know, she, she's clearly pompous mentis, but he's allowed to do that because the law said that a husband can send his wife to an asylum by request and specifically, and this is a quote from the law itself, without the evidence of insanity required in other cases. 
you know, uh, in, in the laws of that time, a woman was a husband's property and he could do with her as he wished. And that's exactly what Theophilus does to his brilliant wife because yeah. she dares to defy him. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, um, I love how you, you call her a brilliant, she, she was brilliant. And he, I, I feel like so many women that the women that I work with, they are brilliant women. They are women who bend over backwards to create these beautiful homes for their families and their husbands. Mm. And that's expected. And, and yet they're not given the voices that they, they're not allowed to, um, have their own money. Mm. They're not allowed to have their own. I mean, I'm thinking of like the very conservative Christian circles that mm -hmm. I ran in. Mm. We were not encouraged to have jobs. We weren't encouraged to, because if you did that, you would be neglecting your family or your home and you couldn't do both and all of that. And people can choose, you know, they weren't even given a choice, really. If you mm -hmm. were a good Christian, this is what you would do and you'd follow these things. So they did enter into it wholeheartedly, just like Elizabeth. I felt like I could relate so much to her that, okay, if this is what I'm given on a silver platter to do, I'm going to do all of it and I'm going to do it amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it everything I've got. And then, but so many times these women do, they kind of outshine the men in their lives. Yeah. And then if you've got a man who's abusive or who doesn't, or who needs to have that sense of control, or who's got that, those insecurities or that weakness. Look, fortunately, we don't get thrown into insane asylums, but we do get labeled borderline personality disorder. That's mm -hmm. a huge one that women in my groups get labeled mm -hmm. or um, bipolar or just overly emotional or spiritually deceived or rebel rebellious. I love how you use the re rebellious a mm. lot. She was, I was thinking we should put that in quotes because she wasn't rebellious at all. Yeah. <laughs> she was very, um, very accommodating. I want you to talk to about how I thought it was fascinating her relationship with the doctor in the insane asylum and how that mm. developed. That was a twisted sort of a situation. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very complicated situation, really. And um, I empathized a lot with Elizabeth. So she is admitted to the asylum, as I say, you know, the law at that time enabled her husband to do that. And she meets Dr. Andrew McFarland, who's the superintendent of the Illinois State Hospital. He is a man, um, in contrast to her husband, who was 15 years older than her, McFarland is just six months younger he is a very distinguished gentleman. He's a man who writes poetry that's sort of lauded for its literary genius by the local paper. Um, he quotes Shakespeare in his psychiatry essays. You know, he's very cultured. He's very well-educated. Um, he's very smooth, very charming. Um, by his own admission, sort of part of his therapy, uh, for want of a, a better word, is to get the women on side, to become their friend. But there's something dark in that therapy because he's not the women's friend. What he wants is to get them, he wants to gain their trust so that they trust him. And then he becomes the puppet master, basically. Yes. Um, he sees himself as the doctor, as a cipher for the absent family members. You know, he's supposed to train Elizabeth and her equally sane, you know, fellow patients. Um, into learning domestic control. So they're supposed to learn to submit to the masculine authority of doctor, of husband, of brother, of father, and therefore be sent home cured. Um, 
but Elizabeth doesn't realise this at first. At first, she's swept away by McFarland, as I say. You know, he's very different from her weak and, um, you know, her husband is just, I, I read the husband's diary as part of my research and he was just so dull and boring and gloomy and <laughs> lazy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how she put up with him for 21 years, but the contrast with McFarland would have been extraordinary. And as I say, he's sort of using every tool, trick in the book um, to try to win her trust and affection, um, including the laying on of hands that she mentions, which, you know, seeing it in a different light, you think, oh, um, you know, there's not good things. So anyway, the, re the relationship starts very positively. Um, she's swept off her feet. Uh, you know, she almost falls in love with him, really. Then she realizes what he's trying to do. And that actually, even though he knows from their conversations that she's sane and that she is not in the wrong, you know, her husband is the one in the wrong to try and send his wife away, you know, separate her from her babies, from her children. Um, she sort of, you know, challenges him on it and challenges him not only in her own case, but the cases of all her friends as well. You know, this is, again, the remarkable thing about Elizabeth. She doesn't just fight for herself, you know. She yes. sees her fellow patients as sisters. She wants to fight for all women yes. and all the patients. And so, you know, audaciously, she challenges the doctor on the entire way that he's running the asylum, including her own case. And at this uh, the fa facade drops, you know, the, the real man is revealed and he sends her to a much worse ward, at which point Elizabeth's suffering, you know, really heightens and she's really got to, you know, try to hold on to herself, her mission, um, you know, who she is and the facts of the case, because he tries everything in her power, in his power uh, to try to crush her. Um, and it does, it, you know, the relationship unfolds from there, but it, it, it's a very complex, very interesting uh, relationship. Yes, it is. I kind of, at towards the beginning, I could, I knew, I, I knew he was bad from the beginning. Mm. I felt like, I felt like, I mean, you did a really good job though, of showing it from her perspective, like giving, mm. showing him from her perspective. So it, what it did is it, it did create that like cognitive dissonance, even in my own mm. mind. Cause there was part of me going, there's something not right about this person. Yeah. But, but, and then also I, I caught on to the fact that she was actually, I think she was responding in a fawning way. You know how, it, when you're mm. being held captive or you're, you've been kidnapped or whatever, you know, yes. you fawn with your captor yeah. to try to, yeah. especially if your captor is behaving that way, behaving kindly, mm. and you're just so grateful that someone is being nice when you're in the yes. midst of so much emotional suffering. So you brought, you so beautifully, uh, presented or detailed all of that. I couldn't, I, I remember reading it and just going, I don't know how she is, how she's doing this, but I mean, I, I mean, I think you had a lot of help with her journals, but you also had to pull from her journals and tell the story in a way where you could give people that that sense of almost going through it with Elizabeth, almost yeah. entering into that experience with her. It was incredible. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Cause yeah. that's my sort of ambition with the whole book is that you walk in step with Elizabeth, you know, this, yes. it is a history book and it's all factual, you know, everything is sourced. Um, but I, you know, it reads like a novel and I want readers to walk in step with her and go on that journey with her. So thank you so much yeah. for saying that.
I think uh, this should be made into a movie. I really do. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think anybody would? There, ha- there has been there has been interest from Hollywood, so uh, I'm not sure at the current time whether it might be a movie or a miniseries because there's a lot of twists and turns and yes. that sort of thing. But I'm hopeful that that maybe it will um, it will come to pass because, as I say, Elizabeth really deserves more she people to know her name and know her story. She does. Um, because it's an astonishing story. Um, so, uh, you know, and what she achieved was astonishing. So I really yeah. hope people are going to gonna know her name, whether it's through the book or, you know, through a, a, an adaptation further down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what happens, what happens next then after she's, so she's in this, the really bad part of the insane asylum and she's now she's really fighting for not just for her life, but for the lives of all of these other women that, that's right. And at this point, this is really where her faith comes into her own. You know, she the night she sent to, to this lower ward, eighth ward, uh, which is full of, as they called them at the time, maniacs, you know, um, and there's degradation, there's filth, um, you know, there's none of the pleasures and privileges that she as a, uh, you know, middle-class married, um, you know, woman experience when she first goes to the asylum, this is absolute rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's her faith that gets her through, you know, the first night she's there, she, she is, it's dark. She's desolate. She's absolutely bleak. She's lost all hope. She realizes what the doctor's been doing. You know, she's just as much in his power as she was her husband's if, if not, you know, more so. Um, but God gets her through. She, she has a saying, um, duties are ours, events, God's. So she thinks God will deal with the bigger picture. I just have to deal with the here and now, you know, I don't know what God's plan is for me. Um, I'm just going to do what I can to, you know, live by my faith in this situation. I'm going to, you know, try and practice, essentially practice what I preach, practice what I believe, and I will leave God to sort out, you know, I can't see why he sent me here, why he's taken me away from my children, you know, why he's doing all of this, but I trust in God that he will see me right, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I, as as is proven, you know, God did have another plan in mind for her and she had to go through this crucible of suffering before she could come out the other side. So she is extraordinary. And as I say, she focuses on on the people around her. She thinks, well, I can't, I can't change the big picture. I can't change you know at this time society I can't change the fact that this doctor has power over me and sent me to this ward I can't change the fact my husband has the power to send me to the asylum but what I can do is look around me at my fellow patients I can see that they're filthy because they haven't been washed by the assistants I can see that they're scared I can see that they need sympathy uh and so she gets to work you know she uh, gets a bucket. Uh, she fills it with hot water. She gets some soap suds from the, you know, asylum attendants and she washes her fellow patients. She cleans the walls. She scrubs the ward. She, you know, makes a difference, you know, it just in these small ways. And then through that, you know, she slowly has an impact on the whole asylum, both encouraging the attendants to be kinder, but also inspiring the other patients that, you know, they can be true to themselves that, you know, they don't need to submit and they start to rebel as well. There's some fantastic scenes in there where the the patients start to have uprisings against this oppressive power. And Elizabeth is the one inspiring them and sort of being that guiding star to, um, you know, influence their, uh, you know, influence and inspire them, basically. 
Yeah. I just, I, I saw her as bringing Christ into that insane asylum, bringing the light of God into that insane asylum and being and, the and hands that's and how she, that's how she saw it too. And, yeah. and she very much, even before actually she goes to the asylum, she feels this sense of a, a God given mission that she feels yes. she's been sent to sort of inspire women to escape the bondage mm. of man. Um, yes. And then once she's in the asylum, as you say, yes, God is guiding her every step. Yes. Um, and her continual faith in him is what gets her through. Yes. But her influence did not just stop there because she did had not. bigger things still to come. She, she did indeed. And, um, you know, without spoiling the, the story, she does ultimately manage to get out of the asylum. Um, and ultimately she determines that she is going to use this voice that she's found in the asylum through the journals, through standing up, for others through standing up to the doctor, you know, there's a wonderful quote that she says, the worst that my enemies can do, they have done. And I fear them no more. Yes. I am now free to be true and honest. No opposition can overcome me. And once she's at that point, you know, nothing can stop this woman and show once she manages to get out of the asylum, she determines she is going to change the world for the better you know, she's told that she cannot have custody of her children um, and she decides she she is going to change the world so that not just she benefits, but lots of other women benefit as well. Um, and there's landmark legal trials about her sanity and there's political campaigning and, you know, really inspirational stuff. And I did include sort of in the later part of the book, there's a, there's another trial which I really wanted to include because I think it showcases what happens when a woman sticks her head above the parapet. Um, you know, slurs are hurled at Elizabeth, not just yes. the slur of being crazy, but the slur of being, you know, a bad woman, a harlot, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Yep. For me, it was really important to include that as part of her story because it showcases that even when once you've risen above, you know, the initial challenge and you're you're out there telling your truth and, and, and sharing your story, people will still try to do you down. There is, you know, and you just have to keep keep going, um, yeah. basically, which is exactly what Elizabeth Packard did. Yes. I you know what I think is incredible is that I feel like she all along carried with her this supernatural vision for how she was going to change the world. She really did believe that God was going to use her to change the world. And the interesting and fascinating thing is that he didn't just use her back in her day. He is using her 150 years later. And we don't even know how her story today is going to impact the future at all. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, I want to bring that out because there are so many women, I think, who are in their four walls of their homes and don't know how their life has any impact on the world. If it's just a wasted life, if it's just, they're just meant to be born and to live out, you know, live out this life of being a victim and then die, or if their life matters. And I just want, I, I, I feel like Elizabeth's story shows that every single life matters and we don't know. She, she doesn't know anything about us. She doesn't know anything about what happened after she did her hard work and she lost so much. She lost so many years with her kids. You know, those of us who think, oh, I can't, you know, my kids, what about my kids? What about her kids? You know, she, God took care of her kids and she ended up changing her world in ways that she didn't even probably she wanted to see, but maybe didn't even realize. And now she can, her story continues to change the world. So 
I just think that gives, um, that gives me so much hope even for the future of our world when we're gone, what we're doing and what you did in finding her story and writing it. I just think that's a God thing. I really do. Do you have any favorite quotes of hers? Anything that she said that is like your favorite? Um, oh, well, and there's almost too many to be a favorite. Yeah. That, that one about the, the worst my enemies can do is, is one of my favorites. Um, I also love, there was a, um, she said, uh, women are made to fly and soar, not to creep and crawl as the haters of our sex want us to. And another one that I love is she says, I will not hide my light under a bushel. I will set it upon a candlestick that it may give light to others. Yes. I love those. Do you see everyone? I hope you see this book is amazing. So get it. And I recommend the audible version. Um, okay. So how has, how has just writing her story impacted your life? I kind of want to know just what it's meant to you to write her story. Oh, well, I mean, it's just such a privilege to be able to write her story and to share her story with the world. So I just feel very humble that, you know, I was the one lucky enough to get to do it, to get to pour over the archives, to get to, you know, intimately, you know, walk with her on her journey, you know, the whole of her journey. Obviously, I've had to cherry pick quotations, you know, for the book. But yeah. as part of the research, I immerse myself in her in her world. And it's fascinating to read everything, you know, to read stuff that she didn't have access to. You know, that's the thing when you're you are sort of going on a historical journey and you're a historical author, you get to see everything. You get to see stuff that she didn't see and didn't know. And actually that um, you know, made some things fall into place. And had she known that, you know, she would have been like, oh, of course, that's why it happened. But she right. you know, she didn't have that knowledge at the time. Um, so, yeah, in terms of changing my life and impacting on my life, um, she is inspirational. I feel very proud that I've written this book that I hope elevates her story and, and gets into people's hands and people's ears um, so that they can learn who she was and what happened to her because she didn't deserve to be airbrushed out of history and it was a very deliberate airbrushing you know this you know if she was remembered at all in the 20th century for example she, she was only remembered as this mad woman and right. she wasn't mad at all you know this right. is this is the the shocking and horrifying thing about the way that history um become you know gets to be rewritten and i touch on that a little bit in in the epilogue sort of you know describing how it how it happens you know i i relate in the book the reality and then you get to see how different, you know, newspaper articles or, you know, people that who were allies of the doctor, for example, you know, they give their version of events and that version of events is what sticks around until right. 150 years later, some British woman, you know, starts digging and, and reveals, you know, the true Elizabeth. Um, so, yeah, so I, I just feel really glad that I've got to do it. And, you know, as I say, very privileged that I got to. Well, I'm really grateful to you for finding her and for sharing her story so beautifully. You are the right, you were the right person to share her story. And yeah, I'm so grateful to you for doing that. And I'm really thankful that you came on the podcast. It's been amazing to meet you. And I'm so excited for so many more people. I really want to get, I want Elizabeth, I want her story to be heard. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to have you here and share Elizabeth's story with the women on this that who listen to this podcast. Thank you thank so you much. So much Natalie. Oh, yeah. thank, thank you. The, the, the gratitude is all, all mine. So thank you so much <laughs> for the opportunity to talk about her. 
And for my listeners, thank you so much for listening in to this episode. Until next time, fly free.